Our passage this morning comes from the third chapter, the Gospel of St. Luke, uh, chapter 3, verses 15 through 20. Uh, as this uh, wraps up the, the, uh, the portion that Luke gives to uh, the ministry of John the Baptist before he gets to the baptism of John the Baptist, I'm going to read the, uh, the entire chapter leading up to verse 20. Uh, so that it, uh, we, we get to hear Luke as he intends to be heard uh, on this. But our focus will be on the preaching of Jesus Christ, of the coming Christ, in verses 15 uh, through 17. Before I read, let's go to the Lord in prayer, that he would bless the reading and preaching of his word. Our Father and our God, we come before you again this morning. We come again asking for your Holy Spirit. We are asking for that same Spirit that you gave to Luke, that he might give us this gospel infallible for us. And we ask as we turn to this word, that you would not let it return unto you void, that your Holy Spirit would dwell in each one of our hearts, that he would prepare our hearts to receive it unto fruitfulness in the gospel, that we might repent of sin, that we might trust in our Savior Jesus Christ, and that we might bear the fruit of obedience to his glory and honor. We also ask, dear Lord, that it not find a hard and stony heart. We ask that the devil would not come and snatch this blessing away from us. We ask, dear Lord, that this preaching of your gospel would not rather confirm in us a reprobate heart, but soften it, that we might receive your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here now the reading of God's holy word from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 20. Now, in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, and of the region of Trachonitis, and, Licin- and Licinius, the tetrarch of Abilene, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priest, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. And the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? And he answered and said unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Then came also the publicans to be baptized, and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed to you. 
And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, What shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. And as the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not, John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And many other things in his exhortation preached he unto the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being reproved by him for Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, added yet this above all, that he shut up John in prison. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever, and his people said, Amen. Here we have in the second part of Luke's delineation of the preaching of John, in the first part where uh, he had beginning with verse 7 and going through verse 14 that we saw a couple of weeks ago, uh, was the content of his preaching of repentance, uh, the warnings that he gave in that, uh, typical. Uh, we have in, John, in Luke that he is giving it to the entire multitude, whereas in other gospel writers uh, they single out the scribes and the Pharisees that came. Uh, but certainly when Jesus was preaching to them, he was preaching also to the crowds. And, and so Luke uh, gives this warning that all needed to hear. And we see the prophet that was uh, given in this, the practical application as well. Uh, in the questions of the multitude, then the questions of the publicans, and then the questions of the occupying soldiers, which shows that John the Baptist wasn't just preaching to Israel after the flesh, but he was preaching indiscriminately. He welcomed the Gentiles to come because the gospel would be for them as well. That John the Baptist's ministry is truly a preparation for the ministry of Jesus Christ, and his ministry and Christ's ministry are the same. In many ways, he is not the Lamb of God that will take away the sins of the world, but he is preaching Christ. And as he preaches Christ, he does so uh, as Christ would do so. And so this now leads to the second aspect of John's preaching. That it was in preparation for the Christ, for the Messiah. That John wasn't just preaching repentance until he saw Jesus Christ to show, show up in his crowd and pointed him out. John knew that he was to be the forerunner. We see this in the revelation given to Zacharias, his father. Uh, we see this in the way he was prepped and trained. We see this in his own testimony as he cites, even as Luke cites for him, Isaiah, that he is the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And so we come to John's testimony concerning the coming Christ and we want to concentrate on that this morning. That's the, the verses we want to really focus on is verses 16 and 17. Although we will uh, give an eye to the others as well. It should be noted, although it's not always made very uh, uh, emphatic, when he summarizes uh, John's ministry in verse 18 and many other things in his exhortation, preached he unto the people. That word preached is literally evangelized. 
he, the people, he preached the gospel. And not just glad tidings generally and generically, but the gospel is what he preached. So, what is an aspect of his gospel? Well, as the people were pondering who he was that we see in verse 15, and it is natural that they do so, they had not had one come and preach with such power and such boldness even before the Sadducees and Pharisees. He was one that was of the priestly caste. He was from, his, he's a son of a priest. He's the son of his mother who was also in the line of Aaron. Uh, this was, as we remember reading in John, a very public birth attended with miracles. And certainly there were those there who knew uh, the nativity of John the Baptist and were waiting for him to enter on to his ministry and anticipating something glorious and great that the Lord had not done in Israel for many centuries. And as he's preaching, it is natural that the question would arise, is this the Christ? The 70 weeks of Daniel have been fulfilled. The scepter has departed completely and fully from Judah. Now is the time that peace, the Shiloh, should enter in. The Messiah should come. Is this he? And of course, John denies it. One of the constant uh, witnesses we have in the Gospels is that John denies that he is the Christ, but he is pointing to the Christ. And, and we... We see the description given. John tells us that the Christ that is coming is incomparable even to the greatest of prophets. In the first part of verse 16. He doesn't label himself as the greatest of prophets. That would be a little bit uh, uh, discongruous with the, the attitude of a prophet. But Jesus himself tells us that there was not one born among women greater than John amongst the prophets. And this John says, I baptize you with water. But one mightier than I cometh, the latchets of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. Uh, in the first century, the lowest of servants, the, the lowest on the totem pole of a, a servant of a great house, his job was to handle the, the feet and the uh, sandals, the shoes of his master. John is saying in the house and kingdom of God, I am not even worthy of that low estate. He is great. And the way he describes them, the two things that he brings forward, the, the positive thing that he is doing for his church, and then the, which is also positive for the church, but also the judgment that he uh, exercises over the wicked, these things point to none other than God himself. That, that yes, uh, the one that is coming after is mightier than he, for he is the divine son. And the first of the great witnesses to that is that Jesus Christ uh, baptizes not with water, but with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And these two sometimes are separated um, in, in, in our understanding. We'll, we'll, after all, verse 17, the next verse speaks of judgment and and ends also with a fire. And perhaps this is the, the same sort of thing, that Christ comes with the Holy Ghost for his people, but the fire judgment to those that refuse. But that's not the picture that the Greek won't allow that, because Holy Ghost and fire are put together. Uh, that there's a different unquenchable fire that is threatened against the wicked. So if you will not have the fire of holiness, 
uh, you will have the fire of the wrath of God. But what is pictured here is that there's a different entirely way that the Lord Jesus Christ will bring in the grace. And it will be genuine grace. And it will be not just uh, the gift of power, but it will be gift of God Himself. The Holy Spirit will be poured out upon His church with fire. This, by the way, is the chief sign of the fact that when Christ ascended up into heaven, He just didn't go up to heaven to enjoy the presence of His Father. He went up into heaven to reign, to rule, to exercise judgment. That we're not waiting for the kingdom of Christ to come in its fullness. The kingdom of Christ is already here. We're wanting it to expand and be actualized in the world. But Christ reigns as king. And the great proof of it was that he sent the promised Holy Spirit. That he poured out the divine nature. Well, if, we, if we're speaking in strict uh, theological language, he poured out the third person of the Holy Trinity upon the church. Jesus says in Acts, and remember Acts is written by Luke as a, as a capstone to his gospel, as the second volume of his gospel. The interpreter, best interpreter of Luke is the Holy Spirit, because, which he gave him, and even better is the Holy Spirit speaking through Luke as well. And we see in Acts 1, uh, verse 5, Christ speaking to his disciples, John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. In verse 8, But ye shall receive power, and after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Ye shall be witnesses unto me in both Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And we look at the day of Pentecost, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of the rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. And it set upon each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That's the literal visible fulfillment of what uh, Luke is speaking of, what John the Baptist spoke of. But it wasn't just a one-time thing. If you look in Acts chapter 11, we're not speaking of something that, that just was a symbol of something that the church experienced at the beginning of her gathering under Jesus Christ, but something that is per, her perpetual blessing. So that when Peter is called to Joppa, or Caesarea from Joppa, and he is going to Cornelius, the first of not proselyte, but an actual Gentile, who has not been circumcised, who has not been kind of gathered halfway into the kingdom of heaven, but is a Gentile. And the Holy Spirit is going to witness to the fact that he belongs to Jesus Christ and is worthy of the ordinances and the sacraments of the church. He pours out upon him the Holy Spirit in a visible way. And so in verse 15 through 17 of chapter 11, uh, Peter recounting this, And as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them, as on us at the beginning. And then remembered I the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. For as much then as God gave them the light gift as he did unto us, who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that could withstand God? 
So it happened, and it's part of the life of the church. Uh, but it also uh, tells us about the nature, that the fire there is, is different from the water. Uh, John uses fire there to distinguish it from his own baptism. And not that his baptism doesn't participate in this, as we shall see, but uh, that this is the, the vitality and the life and the power of even his baptism comes from Christ. He preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. But how are sins remitted? Through that purging fire of God's grace that brings repentance. This we read, we turn back to Ezekiel, is part of the promise of the Messiah. Part of the promise of what the Lord would do unto His people. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. Every time the Old Testament speaks of baptism, it's always looking towards the sprinkling of God's people. From all your filthiness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart will I give you. A new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. And I will give you a heart that lives. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And you shall keep my judgments to do them. He goes on to say that you will mourn and loathe your sins. It's not going to be a halfway power. You will either belong to me or you will be cast out from me. And this is the power of Christ. And here we learn the relationship, by the way, between Christ and the ministry that he has established. Whether it's in the Old Testament prophets, the priests, the Levites, or whether in the New Testament, the apostles, the prophets that were there in those days, the evangelists, or the pastors. That his shepherds administer the sign. The priests sacrifice the, the bull, the lamb, the ram. Uh, the, 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 uh, the various prophets that the Lord raised up, such as Moses or John the Baptist, sprinkled the people to cleanse them with the water, or rather the blood oftentimes of the sacrifice. The sign is in the hands of the minister. But he, by his spirit, seals the grace that is signified by those signs. So when I baptize a covenant child, or a convert even, that is a seal of God's grace to the repentant. And it does bring the forgiveness of sins, not because of the water that was put on there by the minister, but because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the fire of God's grace in Jesus Christ. The ministry is a means that Christ himself has established to receive Christ's grace and power, but it's not a substitute for it. It's not priestcraft, where the, the Mass is said and therefore your sins are automatically forgiven. If you put the coin in the thing and you pay the indulgence, they're automatically gone because the priest has said they're gone. It's not that. But it is a real ministration of the promises of Christ's grace. And when we receive them in faith, when we receive them according to the new covenant promises, that we, we're looking unto Christ Jesus... Christ seals them to us and causes them to flourish for their intention. Baptism, the cleansing 
from our corruption and sin. Uh, the, the supper that we'll be celebrating next week, the nourishing ourselves upon the sacrifice of Christ, upon what he has done for us already. So he comes with the power behind the signs. He comes with the power of our hopes and expectations of the favor of the Lord. But Christ is also coming to divide the wheat from the chaff in verse 17. John says his fan, which is his gospel preaching, the fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into the garner and the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. There is the preparation and the separation and then the, the, the securing of those which are his and the utter destruction of all that's left. It's the way that, um, that the, the wheat was divided back in those days. It was cast up, it was fanned, there's a breeze created. Uh, the expectation was the chaff would, would be separated then from the heavier kernels that were valuable. And, and the refuse, there was no use for it. But this is not just a fire. It is an unquenchable fire. It is a fire that never ceases, which speaks to us of the eternal fires of hell. And this is one of the, the, the places where we establish that. It is not a pleasant thing to consider. But it is part of the role of Jesus Christ as Christ. Uh, we see this in Malachi Chapter 3, verse 18, which is uh, the, the prophecy of, of the work of, of the coming of the Christ, but also leads into the prophecy of the forerunner. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, all that do wickedly, shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. As, as John has already said, Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Here he plants it even more particularly, because we will be under the judgment of Jesus Christ. And that fire of his wrath, if we do not seek his love and mercy is unquenchable because of our sin, because of our condition, uh, that the gospel gathers the elect and exposes the reprobate, exposes sinners. In John three eighteen, just after Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. He says this in verse 18, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is already condemned. Because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God, where is mercy. Because we are already sinners. We are already corrupt. We are already children of wrath. It's not that God looks upon neutral blank slates and say, these I love and these I hate. He looks upon a detestable generation after generation after generation of those that have sought their own way and refused the God that has given them life and has blasphemed his name and blasphemed all that is good and glorious. And in his mercy, he changes and rescues and delivers those whom he will have mercy on. 
and the rest are subject to the justice that they brought upon themselves. This is the teaching of Jesus Christ as well for all men. If you look in Matthew 13, uh, the, the parable of the sower. In Matthew 13, verse uh, 36, uh, Christ explaining that one. says, Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom. The tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy soweth them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the world. The reapers are the angels, and therefore the tares are gathered and burnt in the fire, and so shall it be at the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous shall shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who hath ears to hear? Let him hear. Or we might also look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2 as Paul describes his gospel and the preaching of it. He says in verse 15, For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ, in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but of sincerity, as of God, in the sight of God, Speak we in Christ Jesus. That is the role of the gospel in the world, but it also and is particularly true of the role of the gospel in the visible church. Because John is not speaking generically here. He's speaking to Israel of the flesh. And there will come a winnowing. That there will come those when those who consider themselves children of Abraham will be delineated by the Christ of God, the synagogue of Satan which say they are Jews and are not. And of course, this is brought visibly to pass as Christ himself foretold and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple thereof. But it is a message for the church in all times because it is certainly true then, it is certainly true today. As Paul warns the church in Romans chapter 11, yes, the natural branches were pulled off of the tree, of the root of His grace, and you were grafted in that were wild olives. But if they were cut off because of lack of faith, do you think you'll stand? No. We trust in Christ. And Christ is the branch, uh, the, the vine, and we are the branches. And without faith in Jesus Christ, we're dead branches to be cut off and thrown into the fire. And this is a warning to us that are confident that we, we don't speak of it this way, that we have Abraham as our father. We speak of it as that we uh, have our members of Christ's church. We've made a decision for Christ uh, so many years ago. doesn't matter how that has affected us or changed us or been powerful in us at all. We think that because we declare ourselves to be Christians, then we are Christians, forgetting one of the things that Christ in His own preaching, Matthew 7, 21-23, said that there would be those that call on His name at the end of time, that He will say, Depart from Me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. 
And the parable of the sheep and the goats implies that there are goats within the sheep. The flock of God's pasture. And we have to be reminded of that and warned of it. That we might not rest upon our hypocrisy till it's too late. But that we might realize it, repent of it, and find God's goodness and grace. And this, of course, then sets the vipers against the church. O generation of vipers who have warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Or we see Herod, who hearing the preaching of John against him, cared not to ignore him and let other people profit by him, but was pricked so that he imprisoned him and took away the preaching of John and ended the preaching of John. This is before his death. And this is not given chronologically. We'll have in the very next verse, in chapter uh, verse 21, Jesus coming to John to be baptized. This is uh, Luke wrapping up and giving us an indication of how it is that John fades and Christ is magnified. But this was his role. He knew this. He preached this. He doesn't preach it in our passage, but in the other Gospels, he must shine, rise, and I must fade. Because he's making a way for his Savior. And what this teaches us, the Lord doesn't execute his decrees in ways that seem efficient to us. You know that there are setbacks. If Christ is coming as, as the great judge that separates the wheat from the chaff, as he's the one that gives power to his people, how is it that Herod, a godless man, can come and shut up the preaching of God's word, can take the lamp of God and put it over under a bushel, hide it from the world? How is it like that? That God would permit such things and the atheists and the infidels often bring this to charge against us. Because they would have God be efficient like a machine. God doesn't exercise his decrees according to our views at least of efficiency. I don't know. He has not revealed it to us whether he uses efficiency at all. But certainly from our perspective it's not. But you know machines are not masters of mankind. Machines are tools of mankind. They are efficiency tools of mankind that the rich of men use to, uh, uh, to take away the jobs of the poor of men so that they don't have to deal with uh, boot scrapes and, and sandal makers or the people building crafts and they could have cheap cars and all this sort of thing. Machines, we want God to be a machine because we want God to be our tool. Like Simon Magus, or Elevis the sorcerer. We want grace to be magic, that we can manipulate it. We want God subject to us. And we are not willing to subject ourselves unto the Lord. God doesn't do that. But one of the reasons why he does allow a Herod to come in and seemingly put a stop to the work of the kingdom of heaven is because he is actually executing his judgments. He gives space to the reprobate so that they can kindle even hotter their eternal fire. Just as he took Israel out of Canaan and sheltered her in, even in slavery in Egypt so that he could allow the Canaanites to full up their iniquity. So when he brought his church back, they could be extinguished and crushed and exterminated with no moral qualm. 
Because they were wicked, evil, awful people. Just like the conquistadors going into the Aztecs. It was that kind of religion. A bloody, murderous religion. And God exterminated it. And would have it. And there are people today that are in prosperity. And wealth. And enjoying their glories. And seek to shut up the preaching of the word. Just as Herod shut up John. And the Lord is allowing them to do it. So that when the time comes. Their misery will be great and awful. And the church will give praise. And hear the angels saying. Alleluia. Babylon is fallen. Babylon is fallen. And it will be a glorious thing. To see the reprobate burn for eternity. Heaven is not made less glorious by hell. That is the truth that is given in Scripture. We don't like it because we're sinners. And we know that for the grace of God, we go there too. And so we have a certain sympathy, an understandable sympathy, I think, for sinners. That should lead us to proclaim Christ now while we have opportunity. Not to worry about the justice of God in all eternity. Lessons for us, to bring it back a little bit. The spiritual power of our religion, and I don't shrink from the use of the word religion, James himself uses it. Those who say that the Christian entity is not a religion are those that would destroy it. The spiritual power of our religion, though, is not in the acts of our religion. It is in Christ himself and his promises and his spirit that he gives Do you lack spiritual life when you're obedient to the ordinances of Christ? Go to Christ. One of the ordinances of Christ, the most blessed ordinance that Christ has given His church, the one that is fundamental to everything else, is prayer. And one of the promises of Christ, if you pray in my name... The Father will hear you. And I'm not telling you that I'm going to pray on your behalf. You don't have to come to me so I can go to the Father. Because of my grace, you could go directly to the Father. How many times have we availed ourselves of that? How many times have we left the service of God and said, I just didn't feel the Spirit today? Well, shame on you. Pray. But how many times do we not feel the Spirit because we don't even avail ourselves of the ordinances of Christ? I mentioned already prayer. How many times do we we fail to pray? How many times do we give inattention to the Word of God as the proclamation of God's Word? That this is what is being proclaimed to you is just as what John the Baptist proclaimed to the people gathered around him. The message of Christ, the Word of Christ. Avail yourselves of it. The sacraments that we'll be live, looking at next week, some of you will take it as just the, the, the stale cracker and, and the, uh, the uh, juice. And you might think on Christ's death and that sort of thing. But you won't look at it in the eyes of faith and the promises of Christ. This is my body. This is my blood. And participate in that one sacrifice that Jesus did. Consider it the covenant feast that comes out of that sacrifice, new and fresh, every time it's celebrated. As if Christ just now laid down his life for you. And receive it with that joy. And the bond of union, one to each other, and then we will go forth 
praising Him for the one that baptizes the church in spirit and in fire. We will know His reality and know His life. All our good, all the blessings that we receive in the church, outside of the church, all come from Christ. Everything else is mere sign and signification. That's the blessing, but Christ also has no truck with sin. That's also the lesson of the gospel. He's coming to rescue you from sin because He cannot tolerate sin. He's merciful to you because He knows that if He isn't, you are completely and utterly undone. His peace is the peace of conquest. And when we call out to Him as Savior, we are also calling out to Him as Lord. He has won us. He is our King. And resistance to Him is eternal hellfire. If we would find the peace of Christ, the glory and the life of Christ, the, the, the living power and quickening power of the Holy Spirit, we have to submit ourselves unto Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before You this morning in the name of Jesus Christ. And we ask, Father, that You would give us Your grace, that You would indeed... Uh, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, baptize in Him, that we might be full of your Spirit and the fire of your grace, that you might purge out within us the dross of sin, and that we might be holy unto you, even as you are holy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.